following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, good morning, men. Nice to see you. There was once a very large, successful engineering firm, and they were interviewing a recent graduate from MIT for a particular position, and everything was going great. In the last part of the interview, they brought in the director of HR, and she introduced herself, and she was quite pleasant, and she just smiled very broadly and asked this very young, bright, fresh college graduate, and what starting salary are you looking for? So this young, inexperienced, but highly intelligent and overly educated engineer, he replies, oh, somewhere in the region of 125000 a year, depending, of course, on the benefits package. So without missing a beat or showing any kind of hesitation, the HR director continued to smile and run right into this inquiry. Well, what would you say to a package of five weeks vacation, 14 paid holidays, full medical and dental, company matching retirement to 50% of your salary, and a company car leased every two years, say a red Corvette? So the young engineer sits up straight and says, wow, are you kidding? And the HR director says, yeah, but you started it. <laughs> There's something about expectations when they clash with reality. And that clash, hopefully, will bring someone back to the position of realizing there is an expectation that we should have when we push for the limits, but then being willing as an individual to adjust to whatever realities set up the boundaries of what I look for. Expectations clashing with reality readjusting the boundaries from how I actually live and perform in the life that I've been given. Well, in many ways, that's what we're looking at here in Mark 13, Mark 14, the first 31 verses of that chapter. It's a massive amount of material through a number of very exciting events, but they are really trying to make an, a, a, a huge adjustment in the hearts and the lives of the disciples of Jesus as they come up with the reality of the things that are actually going to be happening. Now, we've established very early on that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but there is this annoying plot going on among those in the religious leadership who have already worked for generations to build a reputation among the population. And you can't miss that. You have to realize that when someone is in a position of power and influence, it oftentimes changes their humanity. It's exactly what we have here in the life of Christ represented in all four of the Gospels. These who, have sh- these who have had the education, these who are in a position of spiritual leadership and influence, these who had all of the information and resources necessary to spiritually lead the nation of Israel failed because their human ego pride got in the way. And they loved the notoriety and they loved their reputation so much so that they could not see the truth about the very Messiah that they were expecting. So their humanity got in the way so badly that instead of listening to Jesus, they rejected him. 
And instead of being happy by going on with their continued careers, of which Jesus Christ never, ever threatened, instead they went and decided that they together as a group were going to try and kill Jesus Christ. Now, there's a, there's a moment of pause on a number of different places in the gospel, but this should be one of the major ones. Spiritual men who decided not only that they did not believe what Jesus said, but now they were going to try to conspire to kill him. Now, from the standpoint of us here in 2015, we might be thinking to ourselves, this is awful. How in the world could highly educated, intelligent, spiritually minded individuals actually want to try to take out the Son of God? But there's an amazing parallel from the standpoint of how we live our lives. If we do not believe Jesus by believing what he says and then acting on what we hear and understand, we are very close to what these particular religious leadership have done. We hear and understand, but do not act according to what we now understand is God's word to us. We're very close to these who are the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. And they will react against the initiatives and all of the things that are stirring in their spirit that are trying to direct them to believe and respond to God appropriately. So it's all about not so much whether or not we were willing to commit murder, and premeditated murder, but it's all about whether or not when we understand what God has said, are we doing anything about it? And that's exactly the point where these particular individuals who are religious leadership, they were pushed to this point. Now what are you going to do? You either accept or reject, and you live according to your choice. So they decided to reject Jesus, and not only did they decide to reject Jesus, they decided to try to plot together, conspire in order to take out Jesus Christ from their life. Now, it's a funny thing about us as human beings, because if we ever get in a position of rejection, get in a position of disbelief, if we could find another human being or a group of human beings who could affirm what we negatively feel towards spiritual truth, somehow we feel that we have justified the reality of our choice. If we have rejected spiritual truth, and we try to find another human being to affirm our position, somehow we have justified our position, even though it's opposed to the Word of God. That's a powerful lesson from that standpoint, but these guys were all experiencing that. And one of the most amazing things about this whole event is, in the process of these individuals conspiring to take out the life of Jesus Christ, this is all occurring during the time of Passover. One of the most important national observations by the nation of Israel. Historically, when God brought them out of Egypt and gave birth to a nation through this miraculous provision of the blood being shed and placed on the doorpost to show that they were covered by the blood of the sacrificed lamb. This historical moment of, of the nation of Israel is now being observed historically at this moment in the life of Jesus Christ when on one hand, these religious leaders are rejecting Jesus and on the other hand, the disciples are trying to figure out what in the world do they do now in light of this impending doom. So I don't know if you have ever taken the life of an animal and had blood shed and blood getting on your hands. It is one of the most unforgettable moments as a human being. Now, generations ago, before we were into this position of walking in a grocery store and buying a very nicely, neatly packaged piece of meat to bring home for dinner, they'd have to kill their own meat. They'd have to kill their own animals. They'd have to hunt it down. And when they, when they killed it and when they dressed it out, it is impossible not to get the blood of the animal on your hands and on your body and on your clothes. 
And there's a fragrance about that that you never forget. And if you're there at the moment when the life leaves the animal, you could watch the eyes of the animal change color and lose the shine and the gleam of life inside this creature. Any of us who hunt, we remember that very first time that happened. And for all of us who've never hunted, we have a very difficult time understanding the significance of why this is such a precious moment. I've been hunting a lot in my lifetime and almost every single time. And I just can't, I only say that because I can't remember a time when I didn't. Pause and be amazed that an animal has now lost its life so that I could feed my family and my friends. That is a moment that is very, very special to anybody who's out in the field. And we have that moment here. But here it's not because they just do it because they love hunting. They do it in order to thank God that he allowed the life of an animal and the blood of that animal to be shed so that they could live. Now that great theme and all those issues are pouring into this moment and it's about ready to change completely because no longer is it going to be an innocent, cute-looking animal. But now it's going to be the person of Jesus Christ who would become the Savior, not just of them, but the entire world. Now in the context of all this, we have not only this amazing sense of these powerful religious leaders who in their own pride are protecting their own position of influence, We not only have Jesus Christ looking at the disciples who are absolutely clueless of what's going on, terrified and hopeful all at the same time, there is a human being who gets it, and a human being who understands that her passionate love for Jesus Christ is about ready to go through a tremendously traumatic moment. And Mary comes in, she's not named here in Mark, but if you look through all the other Gospels, very clearly this is all about her. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This is about Mary who comes in, not invited, not her home, and she acts as if she's the hostess, which is the job of the hostess to wash the feet of your guests who come in from traveling in order to give them a very comfortable experience of reclining at your table and enjoying the hospitality of your home with a wonderful meal. So this particular episode is different from Luke chapter 7, and there are two times when this happened in the life of Jesus Christ. It's not that uncommon from the standpoint of a culture where foot washing is very much a part of your daily routine. But then to have someone to come in to wash your feet with expensive perfume and then not use a towel but use her own hair. Expression of personal sacrifice and personal adoration of the Lord. So she comes in here and does this. It's the same episode as in John chapter 12. But there's an apparent conflict if we look at Mark and John 12 and we're saying to ourselves, well... It seems like one author says this happened during the Passion Week of Jesus Christ on a Thursday, and that the other author seems like they're saying that this occurred on the Friday before the Passion Week occurred. So one of the things that we're looking at here is that this apparent conflict really is different because of the different authors and the different audience and the purpose. John seems to be speaking about the chronology of the events. This particular episode happened before the Passion Week occurred on that Friday. And Mark seems to be suggesting to us that this is a thematic emphasis of the life of an individual who received the grace and mercy of God, who then turns and expresses worship or thanksgiving for what she has received. Now, this isn't about uh, just the simple simple sense of 
this is kind of crazy to have a woman come in here and do this, but instead it's a portrait of what it means to be expressive in your worship with lavishness, not just the token, not just what is appropriate, but going way beyond that so it's overflowing with amazing, amazing expression. Now, some of those who are around there, led by Judas, were criticizing the whole thing from the practical standpoint that, like guys do, why in the world would you spend so much money on something that's so valuable and it's now all wasted all at one time? Jesus rebukes them and commends her. Remember the last time you were madly in love with someone and there was a deep, deep need in their life and you thought to yourself, money is no object to bring back joy and celebration to this one whom you love. Money is no object. Have you ever used those words before to someone that you really love? Most of us guys have absolutely no sense of whether or not that expression should ever be used. My wife and I were living in an apartment in San Francisco, and we were serving the Lord faithfully. I was out for a pastor's meeting one morning, and Yvonne was at the church with a ladies' Bible study. And when she came home from that Bible study, she was in for the shock of her life when the entire door jam of our little apartment was now in splinters with the door hanging open. And like the brave little four-foot, eleven-and-three-quarters person she is, she walked into the apartment thinking, oh, i got to find out if they're still here. And she checked the entire apartment before she called me. and says, Bruce, we've been robbed. And I says, well, don't go in the apartment. She says, well, I'm already in here. She says, well, get out of the apartment. Call the police. I'll be right there. And I showed up when the police were already there, and they were taking down all the information they possibly could. And Yvonne was fighting back the tears. I could just tell her as her little tiny body trembled. The house was ransacked. Into the bedroom we went, and all her jewelry had been thrown on the bed. And they had rifled through all the jewelry. They knew exactly what they were looking for. And Yvonne had left out her favorite ring of all. That's how she describes it. I describe it as the most expensive piece of jewelry I've ever bought in my entire life. (laughs) And it was gone. And I was thinking to myself, I feel sick to my stomach that all that money is now gone in the hands of these vile perpetrators of our security. She was thinking something very similar, but much different. I know I'll never have another ring like this one. That stone was special to me. I loved it every time I put it on, and I would look down at that ring and that stone and think, what a wonderful, wonderful piece of jewelry that I have. All the things. They left all the costume jewelry. They knew exactly what was real. Well, we went through several days and several weeks of irritation and anger and frustration. And I kept on thinking to myself, how in the world am I going to deal with all this as the agents who were our insurance company told us, well, jewelry has a ceiling on it and you never did apply for an extension or an expansion. So I'm afraid that this is the most that we can give you for your loss. And it was a pittance. And I told my wife and she was so disappointed. She said, well, why didn't you? Why didn't you expand that? And she said, well, honey, you know, uh, just, just to remind you, just very gently, We need to itemize all the things we have if we're going to expand any of these specialty areas. And 
And I, I did that with all my weapons. They were all itemized, but they were also all locked in a safe, so none of those were taken. But the insurance company will not expand any of those special capped areas unless we itemize them for them. And I, I ask you five and a half times to itemize those things over the last two years. And you never did it, remember? And she, she sort of half glares and half cries at me. I think actually it's more like 75% glare and 25%. So you just mentioned it very gently one time and you regret it for the rest of your life. Man, did, man, was that dumb. I should have said, oh, I'm so sorry, it's my fault. I should have expanded that insurance coverage and I didn't do it. Well, there was a, there was a hollow emptiness in her spirit for, for days and weeks after we, after we experienced that. And while the ministry was going great and everything we were doing was going great, there was always this little hollowness that I sensed in her spirit. But one day I looked at her and says, you know, this day off that's coming up on Monday, I'm not doing anything. Are you? And she says, no. I says, we're going to take a trip. She says, where are we going to go? I says, we're going to Sacramento. And she says, well, why are we going to Sacramento? I says, we're going to go to Jared's. And she says, Jared's? We can't go to Jared's. I says, yes, we can. She says, what? I says, we're going to go to Jared's. And you look for something that's going to make you happy. Now, I didn't want to use those words. Money is no object. (laughs) I said, don't worry about what the price tag is. We'll find a way and we'll make it happen. And I kept thinking about those words. Money is no object. And she just threw her arms around me and says, oh, oh, I won't won't pick out anything too expensive. I said, oh, Lord, please let her remember those words. Do you guys remember the last time someone that you loved so dearly was so hurt and you wanted to show your love and money was not the object, but something restored your expression of your love, your devotion, and your value to her? That was what was most preeminent. I never gave Ivana a limit. And when she picked out something and the the Jared people were so nice, they could see her delight and my pensiveness as I stood in the backgrounds just watching. They don't try to take advantage of that. They know where to play the game. And man, oh man, did they do a good job. Man, she was delighted. I was so happy. I was amazed at what they offered her. She was stunned at what she selected and the other offerings that they made. And it was one of the happiest moments ever, ever as I remember what it's like to lavish without a sense of money being the limitation and not an attitude about money ever being present, but just wanting her to be restored and happy again. When I look at this story of Mary, she wasn't worried about the 12 disciples. She wasn't worried about what she heard Judas and all the critics say. But there's something about Jesus Christ It was so precious to her, what she received in her life. She wanted to worship him because she knew something awful was coming. It's almost like Mary knew that when Jesus said something, it's worth believing, even though the disciples were totally confused when he said he must die, but he would come back. Mary somehow had a sense of this dark time in the life of Jesus that was on its way, but there still was an amazing sense of hope when she would give the greatest, most lavish expression of worship 
to him. And we can take that translation out of the world of the woman in our life, money is no object, right back here into the spiritual realm. Guys, do you love Jesus enough that you would say to yourself, I have done something lavish to express my devotion and my worship to Jesus Christ because this is how precious he is to me. We guys are basically reserved. We guys, we always hold back. We very rarely just let go. We very rarely think about expressing what we really feel deeply inside about our loyalty, our devotion, our commitment. What does Jesus Christ mean to us? To the point where we will say, my worship to him isn't just great. Hey, worship is fabulous. I feel good when I'm there. I think about it when, when I'm in the presence of great worship. And then, then I leave. And then we go about our week working hard with our passion for our profession. Sometimes we give everything we have to the profession in order to gain either position, advancement, or greater financial reward. But when was the last time we expressed that lavish worship upon Jesus, no matter what people ever thought, never fearing what we would lose, but only thinking in the moment of what it would be like in order to let Jesus know how much he means to us. Well, in contrast to this, and this is one of the amazing things about this chapter, it's a comparison and contrast. You get this beautiful expression of worship, and then you get this awful expression of one of the most horrible moments in the life of Christ, one of the most horrible moments in the human experience, the betrayal of Judas. You can go online and you can type in or Google the 10 worst traitors of all human history, and always at the top of all those lists, even though a lot of the uh, two through ten are different. Almost always that I found, and number one is Judas. Religious or not, that name is a bona fide synonym for traitor, betrayal. Now, what's amazing about this particular episode and these observations is that here, this amazing guy, Judas, he had all of the privileges you could possibly imagine. I mean, he was one of the twelve. He had that close of a relationship with Jesus Christ, and yet. He chose deliberately, intentionally to betray Jesus. And for all of us who've been in leadership, we know what it's like to have someone who is a subordinate, the same time someone that we have been doing our very best to make their life and their career successful. We know what it's like to trust them more and more and over time to build something that we thought was an expectation of some kind of loyalty only to be betrayed that they would use that closeness in order to hurt us. Every leader knows what it's like to be betrayed. It always takes a chunk of your heart and leaves a long-lasting scar. And I've often thought that this particular horrible moment in the life of Jesus Christ was here so that we would know that no matter how awful we have felt when we've been betrayed, Jesus Christ knows exactly how we felt because of this particular episode. It is amazing when we think about why, why in the world would Judas do that? Why would he betray the Son of God? Well, his motive here seems to be he was disillusioned because what he wanted, what Judas wanted was to have his own expectations with regard to 
the kingdom established the way he wanted it to be, a, pol a political kingdom, or maybe he had some ideas or some thought of his own, a, a position of influence, but it was not to be. So being upset, am I okay, Frank? He was so upset, he decided that he was going to get angry and try to do something on his own. Maybe he was just greedy for money. The Bible never tells us we can only be individuals who suspect maybe some of these awful reasons for why Judas had done this. And we switch again. You notice the comparison and contrast, something wonderful, the worship, something awful like the betrayal. Now something wonderful again, an intimate meal with Jesus. The last Passover, the first communion supper. That's what this precious moment is all about. This is probably a better picture of actually how it looked and the famous picture of the Last Supper was done by a great artist, but not a very good biblicist. So this is a better picture of probably what it sort of looked like in the culture of the day with a very low table and pillows and recliners where you would actually lie down with your feet away from the food and you're resting on one elbow while you took food and ate and enjoyed great intimate company. So this very special time, it's a moment when Jesus told his disciples, go in and ask this man when you find him, where my room is and where we can enjoy together the, the Passover meal and share it together. And one of the amazing parts about this passage of Scripture is a verse of Scripture that to me is one of my favorite ones in this passage. And it sort of sits there in a rather a subtle presentation in Mark chapter 14, verse 16. After all these preparations were done and Jesus Christ tells his disciples to go in and and find it, uh, the disciples go in and they found it exactly as it was. And the Bible says in verse 16, the disciples left after Jesus gave them the instructions, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared for the Passover. Now, if you're reading through this too quickly, you, you forget that this phrase, found things just as Jesus had told them. Now, Christ is going to be telling them some really serious stuff about what's going to be happening prophetically, historically. And Christ is trying to prepare his disciples to receive it. And no matter how detailed the words of Jesus Christ are, they will come to pass. If you go into town and ask the, the, this man that you've never met, where, where's Jesus' room? And the man will tell you. And then when you ask him, where, where can he celebrate the Passover meal? He will tell you. How the preparation is going to be done. Don't worry. He has it all figured out. Every precise moment to get into the city for them to now enjoy Passover in a place where Jesus Christ has no ownership, but Christ has somehow pre-prepared this all to occur. And it's exactly as Jesus said. Why wouldn't the spirit of the disciples then be ready when Jesus Christ says, oh, by the way, this week is the week that I told you about. I'm going to be killed. But don't worry about it. I'm coming back. Oh, also I want to tell you that you're going to betray me. You're going to, you're going to run away from me. You're going to be a coward. But don't worry about it. Because when I return, when I get resurrected, I will lead you into the next phase of where we should go. Now, if Jesus Christ says on a smaller scale, you'll find the room, you'll find the preparation, you'll, get, you'll find the meal, and it's all as Jesus Christ said, down to the very detail. Why wouldn't they then be prepared to hear what Jesus Christ said about the next several days and receive it well instead of cutting Jesus Christ off and saying, hey, you're wrong about me, Jesus. 
I, I, won't, I, I won't abandon you. I won't run away. I'm, I'm going to be loyal to you, Jesus. Okay, Peter, we'll see. I've told you what's going to happen. You can believe it or not, but this is what's going to happen. Peter is all about making himself look good without realizing that he's trying to counter the words of Jesus. This is a stunning moment in the life of Jesus Christ. And as we come here to the supper of Jesus Christ, and after it's all done, Jesus Christ goes to Gethsemane. But that anticipated failure is a special moment. This is a picture of what it's like outside the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where Jesus Christ was taken, thrown in a dungeon. Then he was tried in a courtroom situation that was illegal according to Jewish law, but they wanted to express it somehow anyway, and so they got their job done even though it was not qualified. And just outside of Caiaphas's house where the prison is in the basement is this monument to where Peter was probably in that location somewhere very close by denying that he was a follower of Jesus three times and then the rooster crows. I'm not real I'm not a real fan of this place even though I I've been there three times cuz every time I've been to this place in Israel and Jerusalem every time as I'm leaving the place I stand there by the wall and look down to the Kidron Valley, every time on all three trips, and there's always been a rooster crowing. The good thing is always there's been tourists around me on our our trip that are standing there with me, and I said, stand here with me for a little bit. This is the Kidron Valley, and this is where Jesus Christ was, and this is where he was betrayed, and this is where Peter denied the, the Lord Jesus. And somewhere along the line as I'm explaining this whole historical moment, a rooster crows. And I stop talking. And I look at all my guests who are there. Has the rooster crowed for you? I know that he has crowed for me too many times. But here it is in the life of Peter when we as guides try to speak about our ego and our intent and our manliness before we've really counted the cost and realizing that there's a moment here when we have let down our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But there's two parts to what Jesus Christ says here to the disciples. He tells them, you will fall away. But after I am raised, I will then lead you. If they could hear the grace in those two comments, it would be wonderful. But Peter only jumps on the first one. He doesn't jump on the second one or understand these two are really the same story. He cuts off the story before it ever begins. Jesus makes this solemn prediction, but Peter loudly affirms his loyalty. And all of the disciples, this is an amazing part of Mark, all the disciples join with Peter. Peter is not alone in saying, we will be loyal to you. All of them affirm the same thing that Peter had said. In that affirmation, have we ever considered, have I ever made a promise to God and have not kept it thinking the old God understand. Yeah, I didn't make it. Yeah, I fouled up here. Yeah, I probably spoke too soon. Have we ever realized that maybe, maybe an unfulfilled promise on our part is part of our worship to Almighty God for His grace and mercy in our life? Because surely if we remember what we have not done, God surely remembers when we made a promise to Him. Have a great table talk, guys.
Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.